Welcome to To The Point Cybersecurity Podcast. Each week, join Eric Trexler and Rachel Lyon to explore the latest in global cybersecurity news, trending topics, and industry transformation initiatives impacting governments, enterprises, and our way of life. Now, let's get to the point. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of To The Point Podcast. I'm Rachel Lyon, here, but not here, with my co-host, Eric Trexler. Eric, we miss you at RSA this week. I miss you. We, we, I've got my badge on, my press badge we created <laughs> for $4.73 or whatever it was. Very professional looking in honor of being there, except I'm not because I got the COVID and I'm on, I'm on day uh, nine of isolation, I think. Oh, very disappointing. Sucks. You know, we're having a great time in RSA. It's great to be back in person with everyone. And we get to have this week's podcast in person with our guest, Miko Hoopanen. Hmm. Ish. Yeah, that's very good. Thank you. Okay. Thanks. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Rachel's part finish. <laughs> She's not. No. It wasn't even close. Not but we'll accept it. <laughs> I did a 23 on me on her. She's like 0.003%. <laughs> <laughs> welcome to the show, Miko. Yes, welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you. So, Eric, I know you're super excited. Do you want to kick off? Because before we got on this, you had all the questions. So I'd like to give you a chance this time to kick it off. Well, we just discussed this in prep before we went live that you were going to run it because you're in person. I'm playing second fiddle in it's the... Uh, fun. Okay, I, I'm it's in the cheap seats fun. at home here. I will start with... So you're going to say this week, Miko. What are you going to be talking about? Because uh, in, in doing research on you, you've been talking about a lot of really, really interesting topics. I mean, there's Russia, right? There's mm. cyber criminal unicorn games and, and all of the above. I mean, what are big kind one, of the, big one. topics for you this week? Yeah. Well, considering that I do live in Helsinki, which is three hours away from Russia, it's hard to ignore Russia. It's hard to ignore the war in Europe. And I'll tell you, I, I really could have used a holiday between the global pandemic and the war in Europe, but we didn't get one. Did right. We? But for the last three months, pretty much the only research I've been doing has been about U Ukraine and attacks from Russia against Ukraine, Russia against the rest of the world, Russia from Belarus against mm -hmm. Ukraine, and then, of course, the retaliation from Ukraine itself and from the rest of the world who's standing with Ukraine and right. launching their attacks against Russia. It's Most of, of the rest of the world. Yeah, that's right. But, but we, I always try to f also um, emphasize the fact that cyber is important in, in Ukraine war, but it's yes. not the most important thing. I mean, mm. the real tragedies and real deaths are happening in the real world. Right. So I have a question, right. since you're so close to it. Why aren't we seeing more from the cyber war perspective from Russia? I mean, I think all of us expected, you know, electrical grids to go down, mm -hmm. um, just, you know, massive outages. And we're not really seeing that. Why mm. is that? We have seen some things, and the mm -hmm. rest of the things we haven't seen, not because Russia wouldn't have tried. They have tried. Mm -hmm. the, the real explanation from, from my perspective is that Ukraine has been defending itself. And this, by the way, applies both to real-world attacks as right. online attacks. Ukraine has been defending it uh, surprisingly well on, right. on both sides. And especially in the online world, I would claim that Ukraine is the best country in Europe to defend its networks against governmental attacks from Russia. And the reason why is really simple. They've been doing it for eight years. Right. So, so they've been doing it over and over again. And especially during this conflict, 
they've been highly efficient in pinpointing and, and deflecting the attacks, and they're not doing it alone. This is the first time ever where we really see Western companies mm. participating in active war and, and participating in defending against governmental attacks from foreign nations. Mm-hmm. Wow. This is it's unprecedented. Miko, are they better than the Baltic states? Oh, yeah, better than the Baltic states. I work closely with Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania, okay. both the companies, enterprises, and the yeah. governments there. They're good, um, especially Estonia is really impressive. They've, they, they are the most high-tech nation that I really know of um, because they started from scratch. They have no legacy right. systems, and their leaders, including their presidents, have been very tech-savvy all throughout right. their history. But um, right. you, when you compare it to Ukraine, uh, ever since 2015, they've been bombarded over and over again with Russian attacks, and, and they've been like, slowly but surely learning how to handle them better than anyone else. In many ways, they, and, and we've seen reports of General Nakasone. Go ahead, go ahead, Rachel. No, I was just going to make a comment about Nicole Perlroth's book, uh, Eric, where she basically talked about Ukraine being a test kitchen, mm-hmm. you know, for, for Russian cyber activities. Mm-hmm. So it, it seems like they're very well positioned to, you know, to, to know how to thwart this enemy. Uh, I'd be interested if they had other perspective for other nations, right, as well. Yeah, and it's it's interesting to note that. The, the most high-profile attacks that we've seen in, in Ukraine, including the Notpetya, including the Prikarvato Oblenergo attacks, which were the attacks which got the electricity twice in Ukraine. Um, we've seen similar attacks now over the last three months, which have not succeeded. So, for example, they've deployed a number of wipers, some of which did do damage, but most of them did not. They were detected and, and neutralized in time, and they have tried cutting power. Russians have tried cutting power again mm-hmm. in Ukraine and failed. Right. So, so it's it's great ex, uh, examples on, on how the cyber part of this war has been waged so far. And when we look at the other attacks, it's especially interesting to see how many attacks Russia itself has suffered, not from Ukraine, but from civilians mm-hmm. from, from outside of Ukraine who just want to participate and support Ukraine with their attacks. Right. And the fog of the cyber war makes it a little bit hard to see which of the attacks are real and which of them are fake. But clearly there's been tons of activity and data leaks, which will most likely make it easier to sanction Russia better. Right. When we have access to their biggest regulator's email history and the Bank of Russia's email history and documents, we can easily see where they were moving their money in the first days of the war, and which means we can sanction them better. That's wonderful. Yeah, so, so Miko, over the last week or so, we, we've seen some indications from General Nakasone ta- from NSA and Cyber Command talking about U.S. operations, offensive operations in the area of, uh, in, in the AOR. Are, are you seeing anything from that perspective? There's this great fog of cyber war, which makes it also more complicated to see who's doing what. Right. In fact... The fact that there's so many civilians and, and movements like Anonymous and dozens of similar organizations uh, doing operations against Russia, that actually opens up opportunities for nation states to participate. What I mean by that is they can just claim, you know, they can deny or claim attacks that they did or did not do to be their own. Um, the complications in the visibility in the battle in the cyber battlefield open up that kind of opportunities. So in that light, why would Nakasone claim credit for offensive attacks against Russia? The only logical explanation would be that they want to define the borders or to define the thresholds that you know it's okay 
during conflict for governments to use power in cyber without the risk of escalating it into retaliation in the real world. USA tries to fight escalation in this war at any cost. They clearly don't want to go either by themselves or NATO as altogether to go against Russia, which would be a bad outcome for everybody. But they clearly want to participate and get to as close as they can without escalating it further. And I think this talk about cyber attacks against Russia from NSA are part of defining the borders for that. Yeah, and I want to be very clear that the commentary I'm mentioning is coming from a Sky News report out of the UK where he said that they are conducting offensive operations in support of Ukraine, right? So I'm not saying he's attacking Russia. I don't think he's saying they're attacking Russia, but they're conducting a series of operations in response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And so I don't know how we interpret that, but I just wanted to be clear on that distinction there. I, I did see the word offensive used in the reporting repeatedly. So it, it does sound like, you know, NSA would be using offensive power against Russian targets. But of course, it's left unambiguous on purpose. But this is... Or it could be Russian targets in Ukraine or something. Yeah. Yeah. It's unlikely we'll, we'll learn the details of this ever or maybe in 10 or 15 years. We'll see. <laughs> maybe that'll be it your next Is book. attribution so tough? It's, it's hard. Well, the reason why cyber and, weapons and, are so valuable to governments and to militaries is indeed the fact that they are effective, they're affordable, and they are deniable. Yes. You can do false rank operations, you can frame your attacks to look like it's someone else, or you can simply keep denying. I mean, we all know who wrote Stuxnet 15 years ago, 14 years ago, yet I still can't prove it. And that's the perfect example of the deniability of cyber weapons. Well, and, and that takes me to a comment from, I think it was one of your TED Talks a while back, but you're, you're, you said something to the effect of a, a person is more likely to be impacted by crime online than in the real world at this point mm -hmm. in our, our, our development of society. Could you articulate, yeah. uh, amplify that a little bit? Yeah, it's, it's quite remarkable that... The internet revolution has changed the world in so many ways. I mean, it's the best thing which has happened during our lifetime and the worst thing which has happened during our lifetime. Um, while I was writing my book, I checked the stats for, for bank robberies in Finland, my home country of Finland with 5 million people. In 1992, we had 144 bank robberies in a year. So like, like twice a week, a bank was robbed with guns somewhere mm. in Finland. Someone goes into a bank and steals cash. Right. Well, the last time we had a bank robbery was 12 years ago. They, they don't happen anymore because we don't have banks or the right. banks we have don't have cash. Right. But what, what we do have is online bank robberies with credit card skimming or, right. or uh, online banking trojans or hacking into cryptocurrency wallets. So everything has gone digital. And the fact is that if you become a victim of a crime nowadays, it is more likely that it's something happening online than here in the real world. Although... The crime reporting doesn't actually support this. We do call the cops when our bicycle is stolen, but we don't call the cops when our password is stolen. Good point. Why is that? Or, or a crypto wallet or whatever. If, you, if your bicycle is stolen or someone burglars your summer cottage, you actually have to call the cops because you need a cop report for, to right. file, file, for, file for the insurance. 
Um, then when you get hit by an online crime, you know that they're not going to find anyone. Or if, right. even if they find someone, he's in a faraway country, right. different legislation, more small crime, nothing's going to happen. But this actually is a problem because law enforcement agencies around the world are defining their next year's resourcing and budgets based on crime stats. Right. And cybercrime doesn't seem to be a very big crime or a very big problem because right. people are not reporting it. Nice. I, I always tell people to call the cops. I always yeah. tell enterprises, companies, mm-hmm. public sector, as well as home users, when they become victims, you should file a police report, if for nothing else, right. for, for the statistics. Wow. I didn't even think about that, Eric. That kind of causes me pause. And why? Well, I mean, because it's, it's, because it's so true. I mean, when you think about everything in government, I mean, you're very close to government, right? Police departments, everything is based, budget-based on this is where we're seeing the highest trends in, in crime uptick. So let's put all the resources here to, to address that. So if, if we're just assuming that all of these cyber crimes are dealt with at the federal level, ish mm. um you know what, what does that mean to you know all these other people who are facing you know my mom's credit card gets hacked about every other month you know and so she's constantly having to chase that um but if she's not calling right, the but cops, the risk thinking, yeah right the, the the risk to the crime is covered by the bank in the states at least I think it's mm-hmm. $50 maximum penalty on a credit card as long as you report it to the bank. So they build that risk in. I, I would argue that society is still paying the, the cost. It's just in a different way. I would also argue that we recognize cyber crime is growing and it is being resourced. I don't think we're, we're doing it effectively. I mean, we're spending trillions of dollars on on cybersecurity at this point, it's just not effective. So, Miko, I'm I'm in I'm in full agreement with you. You know, people don't report it, um, but the the average individual, and, the and I'll, I'll speak to the states right for a minute. That we are not- Let me go say ahead. Something. I believe the biggest failure we have right here is the fact that we are not catching online criminals better. We're not prosecuting them better. We're not putting them behind the bars right. better. It's not just that we would be able to defend ourselves better or, or recover the losses or fix yeah. hacked systems. What we really should be doing is emphasizing the part of law enforcement to find the criminals, do the international cooperation, get them prosecuted, get them into jail, not only to prove that crime pays, but also to show potential newcomers into the field that, you know, you will be caught for online crimes as well. That's where we're failing the hardest. Big time. Yeah. Fully agree. They don't. Yeah. There's zero prosecution. I mean, how many of the largest, we've named a few names, but nobody's gone to jail, have they? Right. Well, there's been some success stories. Actually, there was a little little, uh, period of time from last October to February this year, where I was really hopeful of this changing, um, I came up with this term cybercrime unicorn five years ago to define the the wealthiest online cybercrime gangs. Today, examples of cybercrime unicorns would be gangs like R-Evil or Conti or Kooming or Lockbit, some of the largest online crime gangs which are wealthy partially because they make so much money, partially because they've held their wealth in Bitcoin, which has increased hundredfold right. in five years. Now, last summer, 
with the JC, JSB uh, and, and Cornell pipeline attacks and, and all these other big ransomware cases, the attitudes really started to change. And that highlighted was highlighted by the $10 million bounty offered by a U.S. State Department for catching ransomware gangs. And right. that really started what I started calling the cybercrime unicorn hunting season. Love it. So for a couple of months, for half a year or so, we started seeing more arrests than ever before in countries that typically did not arrest cybercriminals as well as we wished them they would, including Russia, including uh, Belarus, including Czech Republic, Romania, including uh, Georgia, mm-hmm. including Ukraine. Right. Um, and it looked really good until February 24th when the war started. And then suddenly Russian law enforcement lost all interest in catching Russian online criminals, most of which are now cooperating with Russian government right. to support their homeland. So we had a good start, but it's not going to return anytime soon. Oh. But it's, you know, I'm always kind of looking for a silver lining. Nico. Mm. <laughs> and so, you know, I, I do would hope in the in the future if we start to see some of these positive movements forward, you know, if, if money is what talks, right, mm. in catching these criminals, I think to your point, that's the only way we're going to turn the tide. Um, I mean, this is truly big business. Mm. I mean, mm. they have HR departments oh, yeah. in these companies. I mean, oh. they're like, you know, mega corporations. They have lawyers, they have business analysts, they exactly. have their own data centers, they, they have their own offices, they pay monthly salaries. So these biggest gangs have really become organized crime gangs, just in the same way as we think about traditional real world organized crime gangs. And they are powerful and they are wealthy, and this is a real, real problem. Yeah, it's very much the the evolution. So, what do we do? And where we're going? Yeah. Well, the yeah. thing about these money rewards, um, uh, I think the U.S. State Department's Reward for Justice program, which was created to hunt terrorists, which is the same program they now use to hunt Russian cyber criminals, the power of these programs is is not just offering money for information leading to arrest of criminals. It's the fact that these kind of rewards start eating these crime gangs from within. Right. Think about it. Think about the scenario that you're a member of a crime gang like this. You have, you know, your friends and you are in a crime gang and you read the news that, you know, U.S. State Department is offering $10 million for our arrest or for information leading to our arrest, meaning that if I would rat my friends, all my friends would go to jail, but I wouldn't. I would get immunity. Exactly. And I would get $10 million. And then you realize that, holy hell, all my friends have read the news as well, that I should move before they move. Exactly. And, and this is exactly what, what, what makes these programs work. And this is why we got so much luck and so much success right. in, in, in the cybercrime unicorn hunting season, which sadly now seems to be over for at least for a while. Mm. That's disappointing. Um, you mentioned Lockbit, which Lockbit's been in the news mm-hmm. a lot uh, lately, especially this week with RSA going on and, and the discussion with Mandiant. Oh, yeah, yeah, I saw that. I saw that on, on, on Lockbit's store side. I don't believe it's real. I think it's quite, quite obvious they're trolling Mandiant. For the record, I don't believe that Google or Mandiant has been hacked by mm-hmm. anyone, but they have powerful enemies, of course. And, okay. and I mean, I've been targeted by similar trolling by online crime gangs uh, in, in the past as well. And it just comes with the territory. And it is painful and nasty, but it happens. We had an episode a long time ago where a, a news website was hacked and posted fake news about me and Brian Grebs running an online crime uh, credit card crime syndicate was posted. And, 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 and that news hit the wires and was distributed in completely unrelated news sites, some of which, some of which probably still carry the news wow. today. So, yeah, when, when you 
like work in this industry comes with some package. That's what I've I've heard. We um we've had a, a CISO uh, come here uh, to the company before, and he has no online presence because mm. he had had that happen to him. And right. He absolutely refused to put his photo online. He right. would never talk to media. I mean, he was just like, go oh, away. My, my yeah. favorite example is that I was, I, I've been working many times with an investigator who works for Microsoft, who's an ex-law enforcement officer. And uh, when you Google for his name, you get zero hits. That's impressive. That is impossible to do. But he has How that. do you hide yourself? I don't know, but he has that. And it's, it's spooky because nobody gets zero heat, but he does. Anybody. <laughs> I imagine trying to unwind That's the way to it's do impossible. it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's really impressive. <laughs> so, so you Miko, you have a new book coming out. Coming out. Oh, yes. Rachel, we're together on, on this the one. same wavelength. Yes. I want to hear all about this. Well, ever since um, 2011, I've been working on a book project. Um, and it's been going nowhere because I've been clocking 140 flights a year for the last 10 years, which is not healthy or, 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 or good for the environment, but I've been doing it nevertheless. I've been all, all, like uh, um, compensating my CO2 load for the planet, though, for the record. But nevertheless, now that the pandemic started, mm -hmm. then I had no excuses not to finish the book. So I did. I, I'm really glad I was able to finally get it done. And uh, it's coming out from Wiley in August. I'll actually be releasing it in Black Hat this year, and that yes. should, be, should be good. The book is titled, If It's Smart, It's Vulnerable, and it's a collection of my thoughts on how did we end up where we are today and where are we going to go next. I, I like go through the digital revolution around mm -hmm. us and why it is the best thing and the worst thing which has happened during our time. So where are we going next? Can you can you give us any spoilers? Or? Yeah, sure. I mean, that's actually really really easy. The easiest question is where we're going to go in the future because that's obvious. Um, near future is hard to tell. Far mm. future is obvious. Look at how computers have evolved over the last decades. Um, they've been getting faster and faster, more memory, more processing yeah. power, more bandwidth, and cheaper and cheaper. Right. Like we're all carrying supercomputers in our pockets right now. So let's continue that development. Where does it take us? It takes us into a world where computing is limitless. Mm. Everybody has access to computers with unlimited power, unlimited storage, unlimited bandwidth, and they're free. Right. Like that's the direction. Wow. Now, don't take me literally. I mean, sure. It's not going to be literally unlimited. Right. It, not literally free, but very powerful and mm. very cheap, which is a really empowering thought because for, for those of us who are developers and who build things, imagine that you are given the most powerful AWS instance with no restrictions and you're paying one cent a month. Like, what would you build right. if there would be no restrictions? And that's a really exciting thought. Very and that's exciting. the world where we're headed to. So it's, it's going to be good. Wow. So, okay, what about, I know you have thoughts on quantum. Everyone's talking about quantum coming up. Are we worried about quantum at all in, I'm, in I'm this not, future? I'm not, I'm not worried about As quantum. As of June 3rd, no. Okay. It's... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> It's, uh, it's one of those things which is always around the corner. And I do know that we are living right now in an in, in age where there's like faster developments in quantum systems than ever before. But you could say exactly the same things about AI. Um, the first time I read about quantum computing and, and AI systems was in the 1980s, wow. so 40 years ago. Mm -hmm. and, and, and we're still waiting for the big revolution. Right. Uh, it's not going to happen anytime soon. Like cu current encryption systems can be broken by quantum computers, but it's not going to happen today or next year or the year after right. that. And we are building quantum-safe algorithms already. Uh, I'm confident that they will be deployed widely before we actually need any 
concrete uh, quantum proof algorithms. And uh, by the way, we already have. I mean, people are already using quantum proof algorithms. Uh, maybe the best known example is Bitcoin. Ah. Bitcoin is quantum proof. If you use a new address for every transaction, it can't be broken with any quantum mechanism that we know of. So, yeah. once again, Natoshi uh, Satoshi Nakamoto, the, the great genius of our time. Ah. That's it's, it's fascinating about the But do you have to go back? That... Yeah. <laughs> go ahead, Rachel. No, go ahead, Eric. Do you do you have to go back and and re-encrypt everything with a quantum safe algorithm? I mean, I I can't see the U.S. government doing that. I can't see the average citizen doing that. I can't even see a lot of commercial organizations going back and saying, "Okay, we're going to re-encrypt everything we had that was created or stored or or accessed by this application that you you paid us to use or that you're using through us." Well. In theory, you do. In practice, you don't. Um, I'm assuming quantum uh, computers aren't going to break any of the algorithms we use today in any time soon. So if it happens in 20 years or 30 years or 40 years, we've been using quantum-proof algorithms already for decades by that time. And, and yes, okay. data is readable and accessible forever, but most data isn't uh, important or, or, or conf- confidential anymore. I recently found a, an old backup of our email server from 1993 and I restored it and I was looking at the data and I realized that none of this information is secret anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, discussions about <laughs> yeah, who cares? products and how do we price them and, and right. s- selling them to the customers in 1993. Um, it was really big secrets at the time, but right. now it's just historical facts. We could basically yeah. publish those emails online and there would be no secrets le- left yeah. in them. So. Most data isn't that important after 20 years or so. Right. There's some ex- exceptions, like like medical data, but, right. but most data isn't. So I don't think we have to go back and, and re-encrypt information uh, just because quantum computing, even um, except in most extreme situations. So okay. I have a question Fair too point. that I'm getting to, Eric, is on cryptocurrency, though, you know, this whole idea of, I mean, banks are vulnerable, right? As, as boats go all digital. Um, I mean, is cryptocurrency truly like our future? As we look at, you know, mainstream monetary value, do, is this something that we should be looking at the next 20 years of, you know, hey, like start diversifying now? Uh, because when we look at, you know, if, if computing is going to accelerate at such a speed, mm-hmm. which we know it is, mm-hmm. right? And, and then quantum computing is coming at whatever point in time. It seems like there's a natural movement forward that we need to be, have more secure currency than what we have today. Right. Well, we have two types of currency on the planet. We have currency based on nothing or currencies based on math. Right. And, and dollars and euros are based on nothing. Or if they're based on something, they're based on politics. Right. That, that's the exactly. only thing they're based on. With that said, I'm confident that in 30, 40 years, we'll still be using dollars and euros to buy our coffee. Interesting. Um, however, when computers transact with other computers, why would they be using dollars or euros? Right. And that's going to grow exponentially. Like, like just a simple example, a computer system needs storage and it buys it from another computer which is providing right. cloud storage services through APIs. Why would those transact in human currency? Obviously, right. they will be using digital currency. Right. So, so there is a revolution going on, but I don't think it's going to change the way we pay 
like where humans pay sure. for everyday things. Um, it might happen one day, but that's going to be a much longer lo- longer discussion. But like programmable money is a good idea, and, right. and it will change the world. And blockchain is one of those innovations that it's such an obvious innovation once it was invented. Like you explain blockchain to someone, it's right. just a list of transactions which is forever unchangeable and forever public. That's it. Sounds like pretty obvious thing. And right. yes, it's pretty obvious now, but it wasn't obvious until it was invented. And that's how you can tell that it's a major innovation. Like mm-hmm. Once you invent it, it's obvious. Right. You know, I'm waiting for my magical innovation. I don't think I have one, Nico. Oh, I have to start inventing and writing them down. It doesn't happen by itself. I do have this theory, though, that everybody has like that idea, that million-dollar idea. It's just making the time to have like the headspace. Right. You know, to, right. to think about it, write it down, and then flesh it out. But right. it's... So many great ideas. I imagine you've got a lot of great ideas. Well, yes, and a lot of a lot of bad ideas as well. <laughs> Funny thing is that I've been in the industry yeah, so, they go so hand long in hand. that there's tons of yeah. I mean, there's tons of things you you which are so obvious in hindsight, but which weren't so so easy uh, choices to make back then. So, for example, around 1995, when Netscape, the brand new browser, in, introduced SSL, we had encryption on the web. And to do encryption, you needed certificates. And we were considering that, yeah, that might be a good business. Like, you know, we're, we're a Finnish company. We're pretty trustworthy. The least corrupted country in the world. Maybe we could make a business selling certificates. And we reviewed the idea and considered it. And then we decided against it. Oh, no, no, we're not going to do that. And we didn't. Two years later, a company from South Africa called Thafte started selling certificates from, from Africa, sure. which is... Not the most obvious place to do this. Right. The guy Mark not the Hanwood most trusted sold his company very very signed for two billion dollars five years later and used the money to start Ubuntu, which you might know. So, right. Wow. So, and and I was wondering like, maybe maybe that's what we should have done. But then again, no regrets. We didn't miss right. that opportunity. We saw the opportunity yes. and actively decided not to pursue that exactly. opportunity. So you know, <laughs> no 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 bad feelings. <laughs> Rachel, Next question time. for you here. Okay. Rachel, which which is worse, not seeing the opportunity or seeing it and passing on it? I think seeing it and passing on it is the way to go. You know, because <laughs> then you trust your instincts okay. too, right? Your instincts yeah. are right, but it wasn't the thing for you at that time. Right. Yep. I agree. Right. I'm an optimist, Eric. Forever the optimist. I know you are. I know you are. Okay, last question, Rachel. We've got to wrap here. Okay, do you want it? Do you want me to take it? Ladies, have the privilege here. Go for it. (laughs) Okay, so what are you most excited about? I mean, after being in this industry 30 years, we've got, I mean, it's a lot of cynicism creeps Mm. in right over time and, and everything you've seen. But, you know, in your lifetime, while you're still on this planet, what is the one thing that you are most excited about? Uh, before you pass on to where whatever the other realm is. What? <laughs> Ooh, that's that's deep. How, how that's deep. We, I should have taken the question. But how go did ahead. we get into discussions about life and death? <laughs> when I was a small boy, whenever adults would ask me, like, Mikko, what are you going to do when you grow up? I would always tell them that I'm going to be a doctor. Ooh. Mikko, why do you want to be a doctor? Because I want to help people. Then a little bit later, I realized that if I see blood, I, I, I don't feel well. Sure. And you can't become a doctor if you can't look at blood. So I didn't. Right. Um, 
but I did become sort of a virus doctor or something like that. There's just something in my everyday work which still has part of what I had in mind as a kid. I want to use my expertise, my experience, my skills to help people. Mm -hmm. and, and not just me personally, but I mean, that's what we do in, exactly. in, in cybersecurity industry. People come to us asking for help. Help us. Mm -hmm. Help me. We are under attack. Can you help me? And it feels good Doesn't when it? we can yes. help them. And, and of, of course, this is a business. Like well, cybersecurity industry is a business yeah. and it's making a profit out of it. But it's a little bit more than that. It's also the fact that people who could be working in any field in IT choose to work in security because mm -hmm. they know they can make a difference and they know they can help other people. And that's what I'm excited about. That's wonderful. That's what I love about the security community. I mean, it's really, really tight and it's hard and it's not for everyone. Right. But it's incredibly, you know, no matter how hard it is and you know, you're fighting this, this endless adversary mm -hmm. that's, you know, seemingly unconquerable. But when you do have those wins, it's immensely satisfying and you see that translate to your community, to, you know, society as a whole. Yeah. So I love that. To I help, love that a lot. Help your fellow men. Absolutely. And no blood. Nico, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been wonderful. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Yeah. All right. Well, everyone, until next time, be sure to smash that subscription button as always. Get a fresh email with a fresh new episode right to your inbox. Uh, and until next time, everybody, stay safe. Thanks for joining us on the To The Point Cybersecurity Podcast, brought to you by Forcepoint. For more information and show notes from today's episode, please visit www.forcepoint.com slash govpodcast. And don't forget to subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts.